Welcome to Sultan Light Radio, the Summer Edition. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann. Tonight we go to the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, for a special lecture given by Sultan Light Executive Producer Father Thomas Rosica, who is a Brazilian priest and was also the Executive Director of World Youth Day 2002. The lecture was part of the annual University's Lenten series and was taped in February 2008. The theme of the talk was the church and the media. Let's listen now to Father Thomas Rosica on Salt and Light Radio, the Summer Edition. On the evening of October the 16th, 1978, the Polish Cardinal, Karol Wojtyła, walked out onto the world stage. Following the white smoke from now, that now familiar Sistine Chapel's chimney, the stranger was presented to the waiting crowd as John Paul II, and he spoke personally to the huge crowd in St. Peter's Square, going far beyond the prescribed Latin greeting of an Orbian Orbi blessing. He immediately bonded with the audience that night, describing himself as the man who was called from a distant country, now in Rome. He even asked the Italian crowd to correct his Italian. From the very beginning of the pontificate, the youthful, youthful athletic pope literally took the world by storm. And the media from that very night knew that they had a friend in this church leader. And church media relations were forever changed on the night of October 16, 1978. For three months during the winter of 2005, now three years ago, the world was inundated with words, stories, and profoundly moving and touching images and ceremonies coming to us from Rome. Images that helped us to recall and evaluate this world leader's charismatic life and mission. In our age of very titillating television reality shows, that often depict the crudest form of human existence, the world was invited three years ago to take part in another kind of a reality show of deep pathos and emotion. First in the papal apartments, then at Rome's Gemelli Poly Clinic, and finally back in the Apostolic Palace in Vatican City. Whereas exactly one year earlier in 2004, editors and producers and bloggers and writers were buzzing about the other passion from Hollywood, the 2005 version of the passion, the passion of John Paul II from Rome, spoke about the mystery of suffering and death, death and new life. And rather than hide his infirmities, as most public figures do, he let the whole world see what he went through. And you caught some of that in some of these images. The Vatican reality show, as we call it in our business, reached its apex in the octave of Easter and was an extraordinary teaching moment for the church and for the world. In fact, I consider it the most powerful teaching moment that the Roman Catholic Church has ever had. It was brought to us by the media and choreographed by the star himself, John Paul II, even to the last detail. It came as no surprise, for the Pope had remarked on several occasions in private and public discourse in one of those private moments, he said it to me, if it doesn't happen on television, it doesn't happen. <laughs> the passing of this pope did not take place in private, 
but before television cameras of the world. And the people of the world watched and were glued to it for days after days after days. Who can ever forget the long crowds that gathered in vigil at St. Peter's Square as he lay dying, and the throngs that were pressing into the Vatican Basilica, four and a half miles long, to pay homage to the deceased Pope, and their weight gave way to a 12-second viewing of his body. Three television cameras installed in the Basilica kept running day and night for three consecutive days to depict the river of humanity streaming towards the body of John Paul. Major international television networks that transmit the news around the clock, like CNN, CBS, ABC, RAI, CBC, stayed connected to the Vatican for days and days. Some would say that they went overboard and lost perspective. Others, like myself, were quietly giving thanks to God that this story was being shared in no small way with the world. This was global evangelization in action at its best. In March and April of 2005, now three years ago, we learned once again in John Paul II's retreating and passing how vast he was among us on the world stage. Our memories of what he was like before his retreat or departure have now become suffused with the profound weight of post-mortem insight. He was a bestseller in life and a bestseller in death. This world leader of a billion Roman Catholics was the first pontiff of the media, satellite, internet, and blogging age. And he had a commanding presence on center stage and thrived on those occasions. And several people have taken to say now that he was the center stage and the world moved with him. While John Paul II did leave behind a spiritual testament that was read to the cardinals in those days following his death, his last major formal document was an apostolic letter that was released on January the 25th, three years ago, entitled The Rapid Development to Those Responsible for Communications. And it contains a very important message for every media mogul, copy editor, reporter, writer, broadcaster, webmaster, whether Roman Catholic or not. A spirituality of communications is one of the major contributions of that letter, and it's none other than John Paul II's testament on social communications. It's not a coincidence that the last document of the great pope should be on the theme of communications. For if any church leader ever embodied and exemplified the great communicator, it was Carol Wojtyla. The contents of this remarkable document were somewhat eclipsed by his sickness, by the hospitalizations, and then his death. But I strongly recommend that anybody who wants to know what the social communications agenda of the Pope was about, go back and discover this document, which was released in English and is available on the Vatican website. In rapid development, John Paul was concise in reviewing the Christian view of history. He wrote, Salvation history recounts and documents the communication of God with man, a communication which uses all the forms and ways of communication. He then notes the history's greatest communicator, Jesus Christ, who used a variety of techniques. I quote, Jesus explains the scriptures. He expresses himself in parables, dialogues within the intimacy of the home, speaks in public squares, along the streets, on the shores of the lake, and on mountaintops. 
The personal encounter with him does not leave one indifferent, but stimulates imitation. What I say to you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. John Paul also states, quote, the media provides a providential opportunity for people everywhere, overcoming barriers of time, of space, and of language, presenting the content of faith in the most varied ways imaginable, and offering to all who search the possibility of entering into dialogue with the mystery of God revealed fully in Jesus Christ. Rapid Development says that education is necessary to use the media well. In fact, John Paul says that the use of the media favors understanding, collaboration, respect of differences, mutual acceptance. Therefore, the media becomes an instrument at the service of peace, at the service of the development of human society. The Pope gave an example in that very letter on the mobilization of the world after the tsunami tragedy, stating that a campaign of solidarity was launched worldwide as has never before been seen. Thanks to the means of communication and to their capacity to transmit images from one place to another in the world. The Pope said that communicators, both within and outside the church, must apply in their own lives those values and behaviors that they are called to teach others. The communicator is not only one who practices his work, but someone who lives his work. It's a vocation. As communicator, the person transmits a view and therefore becomes a witness. Communicators must be witnesses of values that are good for society. But there was a warning and a challenge in this brief document. The Pope wrote, many people in fact believe that humanity must learn to live in a climate governed by the absence of meaning, by the provisional and the fleeting. In this context, the communications media can be used to proclaim the gospel or reduce it to silence within human hearts. This poses a serious challenge for believers, especially for parents, family, and all those responsible for the formation of children and young people. Those individuals in the church community, particularly gifted with the work and talent in the media, should be encouraged with pastoral prudence and wisdom so they may become professionals capable of dialoguing with this vast world of mass media. Why did the pontiff encourage the faithful with talent to enter the media. New technologies in particular create further opportunities for communication understood as a service to the pastoral government and organization of the different tasks of the Christian community. One clear example today is how the internet not only provides resources for more information, but habituates persons to interactive communication. However, alongside the internet, other new means of communications, as well as traditional ones, should be used. In other words, we don't put all our eggs in one basket in the church. We use everything to get the word out. Daily and weekly newspapers, publications, tracts, Catholic television and radio still remain highly useful means and offer a complete panorama of church communications. The most interesting development of rapid development, the most interesting aspect in my mind, may be its comment on communication within and by the church. After citing a number of other statements and documents on public opinion in the church, John Paul said, communication both within the church community and between the church and the world at large requires openness and a new approach towards facing questions regarding the world of media. This communication must tend towards a constructive dialogue 
so as to promote a correctly informed and discerning public opinion within the church community. We have a long way to go in this area, in the church and in our media establishments, in our departments of communications. Barrier walls and hostilities that exist between media and church must be overcome. It serves no purpose for church officials of any sort and leaders to vilify those involved in the media, to stonewall and not respond those constant, urgent phone calls of the last minute by this reporter, that editor, some producer. That's the nature of the beast. They don't call it breaking news for nothing. Nor does it serve any purpose for those in media world to ignore or marginalize the church and religious issues into banal, trivial matters that do not merit serious reflection. We have so much to learn from one another, and we have much good work to do together to serve the cause of truth and decency in a world that's becoming more devoid of value, virtue, and meaning. We need not be afraid of one another. If we take John Paul II's word seriously, do not be afraid, it means that we shouldn't be afraid of one another and not in some kind of a generic, vague way. What is required of all of us who are involved in communications, in evangelization and media, in small ways and big ways, is prudence, wisdom, intelligence, and above all, humanity. And dealing with the media today is not the sole work of the designated church communications personnel, some who know the trade and know the importance of proactive and active work, and others, while they think there are experts, know the trade very poorly, always remaining in fearful, reactive, retractive, and crusading modes of response. It is incumbent upon every future pastoral minister to be formed and educated in media awareness and to be able to speak courageously cogently, boldly, and kindly to the media. We're not ordained or called to serve our churches simply to be crusaders for causes, but to proclaim a message in season and out of season, always with dignity, firmness, and kindness. We're not called, we're not ordained, we're not hired to keep our message shrouded in darkness or to store lights under bushels for fear of the media or the greater public. We will all make big mistakes and blunders in venturing forward on the media stage, but we must learn from those mistakes, let go of old grudges and animosities, and build for a very collaborative future. Through his nearly 27-year pontificate, John Paul II taught us that communication is power. He told us to use that power wisely. Prudently get our message out, and it will have a shot at bearing fruit despite obstacles. And if anyone knew about obstacles, John Paul II did, having lived long and prospered despite being faced with, from the very beginning with the tyranny of Nazism and communism, hiding our message will do no good to anyone. Like the mustard seed in the New Testament, we must sow in order to reap. You're listening to a special lecture on the Catholic Church and the media with Salt and Light executive producer, Father Thomas Rosica. Now let me become specific in how this spirituality is translated into our efforts in using the media. We're living in an age when the media dominates almost every aspect of society. We're surrounded by it. Many of us are immersed in it and addicted to it from the moment our radio alarm delivers the first news bulletin of the day 
into our emerging consciousness until we switch off the late night TV or the home computer. News, information, entertainment are at our fingertips 24 hours a day. This overwhelming, overpowering influence of the media can sometimes make us anxious or drive us mad. It's also easy to take for granted the wonders of the modern media and its role in bringing our human family closer together. Often it's not until we're faced with a major national disaster, natural disaster, catastrophe, crisis, such as the tsunami, such as September the 11th, that we realize the power of the media to do good. We can all remember such tragedies and the immediacy with which the media brought us images and reports of the suffering of our fellow human beings. Such immediate coverage aids a quick response and reminds us that we are connected. We're not islands. We're here together. The media is often used at the service of the church, wisely at that. We see this in the coverage of those mega events that you saw here, like the World Youth Days, perhaps the greatest tools of the new evangelization in our church and in our world. The media is used for the death of a pope and the election of a successor, and the coverage of small parish or diocesan events, which help make up the fabric of our communities. We experience it powerfully when a Catholic university president is plucked up, stolen, moved to Rome, ordained archbishop, and made deputy minister of education in a world, worldwide multinational organization called the Vatican. And most recently, y'all down here in Houston experienced the worldwide power of the media when the Holy Father bestowed the red hat to this archdiocese. Suddenly, the homegrown Pittsburgh boy, displaced once to Sioux City, then to Houston, was playing on a world stage. And I must admit, I've never experienced such chaos in St. Peter's Basilica as I did at the consistory. When Cardinal DiNardo was called up, I was sitting in the front near the Swiss guards, and two of the Swiss guards saw this ruckus display of all of Texas rising up. <laughs> and they turned to one another, one in German and one in Italian, and they said, Tutto Texas è qua oggi. All of Texas is here today. <laughs> and the world saw it. The entertainment media has produced films and programs which elevate our hearts and minds and help to refresh us, move us, and challenge us. The church also uses wisely the internet to connect with countless millions of people from the Vatican to diocesan parishes and websites. And the Vatican website, if you don't know, is the largest and one of the most visited websites in the world. Thanks to Sister Judith Zobline, one of your own, one of the Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist, who commands quite an operation out of a little office hidden behind the Vatican Bank building. As Christians, we know that communication lies at the heart of our mission. Christ was the ultimate communicator. His incarnation was God's greatest communication with humankind. Jesus exhorted those who followed him to take his message to the ends of the earth, and the well-known hymn encapsulates it well. Go tell everyone, not go to the village, Go to your neighborhood. Go tell everyone. Scream it out from the rooftops. His challenge remains the same to us today. And to do this effectively, we must engage with the secular world and the secular media and take all the risks that that entails. Soon after his election, in fact, a few days after, Pope Benedict explained this in an, his first audience to the journalists. I was part of that gathering in the square, in the audience hall, and he said these words, the responsibility the responsible contribution of each and every one of you is needed 
so that instruments of social communication can provide a positive service to the common good. Those who work in this field must be given clear indications of their ethical responsibility, especially regarding sincere research for truth and protection of the centrality and the dignity of the human person. Only with these conditions are the media able to respond to the design of God who placed them at our disposal to discover, to use, and to make known the truth, also the truth about our dignity and about our destiny as his children, heirs of his eternal kingdom. And as a church, the most effective way we can use the media is by bearing true witness to the message we seek to deliver. The strength of our message lies in the authenticity with which it is presented. Now some comments on the internet, which is a blessing and a huge challenge and a burden for the church. The internet provides a smorgasbord of news and entertainment, but usually only in bite-sized chunks, sound bites. Browsers on news sites can click to find out more from many of the headlines, and the barest of bones of the story may be all that is required to satiate their curiosity or confirm an opinion of a particular matter. The speed with which news can be communicated via the internet has made the world seem smaller, but it hasn't necessarily brought us closer together. Few of us can imagine life without email. I would die. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do a World Youth Day without email. E-business is booming and friends and families can communicate across the world at any time. With so much information available on the net, we often suffer from intoxication, overload, and the need for a careful discrimination and discernment is greater than ever now. The use of the internet for pornography and other activities which attack human dignity is of utmost concern and calls for constant vigilance and appropriate government regulations. But in terms of church communication, we have a huge challenge before us, and that challenge is, what is the use of the word Catholic? the official Catholic website on such a thing. And people quote these things like you wouldn't believe. Every day coming into our news headquarters in Toronto are news stories from the official Catholic news sites run from someone's basement. It's a very important phenomenon in how the word Catholic is being used and applied, and it's a huge challenge. It's those uncharted waters that this whole new explosion has caused. Then, of course, we have the world of blogs. I won't tell you which cardinal said this, but he sent me a message saying, the blogosphere is a kind of a dangerous, endless recess in a global schoolyard where the bullies with the biggest bullhorns can shout whatever they want. <laughs> Blogs are very interesting tools. I'm waiting for the vigil, the Easter vigil, when we will hear the first reading will be from Whispers in the Loggia, and the second reading will be from the new blog, Screams in the Piazza. Look at the world of blogs, and what is it telling us? What authority do we give to those texts? They're very important services, but also it represents another huge challenge in terms of authoritative teaching, and everybody assumes a great authority now in speaking about something. We have people in our office that monitor the blogs to see what people are saying about salt and light. And over a particular program, somebody will bring in five different blogs. The program was crazy. The program was wild. This was no good. The girl wasn't dressed with enough clothes. And father was off his rocker. And all of this is about a very beautiful program that the bishops are praising. So you wonder, what's going on? It's a fascinating reality. And it's part of this explosion. Radio suffers a bit in all of this. 
radio still remains a very important, if not the most important and frequented means of attention and communication. It remains the medium with the second largest share of consumption by many countries. It's a powerful and intimate medium, and one should never discount the effect and persuasion of a person's voice being heard over the radio. They're extremely helpful, especially when you're stuck in traffic. <laughs> radio news can often oversimplify in the same way as news items listed on the internet. The best examples of radio, which may include reports of about three minutes on average, or interviews of up to an hour, provide the audience with a far better precy of the issue or a more balanced picture of a newsmaker than they had hitherto been exposed to. But how much are we using radio in the church to get this message across? I applaud the efforts, especially in the United States, of Catholic radio, relevant radio, and all those other radio networks that are trying to get the message out. Talkback radio dominates our airwaves every morning and afternoon, allowing us to take part directly, supposedly under the guise of interactivity. But one doesn't have to listen for too long to realize that the quality can range from the excellent to the appalling, and too often in this forum, human dignity is the loser. It requires great discernment. Print media. There are those who say that print media is near death. It's in the final stages of its life. But it can provide greater depth and more background information than electronic media. And let's never deceive ourselves that there are still generations of people for whom the internet and the blogs and email are not part of their daily life. They still need something in their hand. And I must admit, I like something in my hand every now and then to hold and to read. Newspaper readership is declining in the face of these new technologies. The print media remains an authoritative source of news because unlike internet blogs, newspapers are written supposedly by professional journalists. However, part of a journalist's job is to make judgments about the quotes and background material they are using when crafting a story. By definition, therefore, as consumers, we need to be aware that even the most well-written and well-balanced news item can never tell the whole story. Here I just want to interject because I'd written this before last night. I want to applaud this university for what I saw last night happening at that wonderful banquet, the Mardi Gras banquet, during which the publisher of the Houston Chronicle was featured in a special way. On the way out of the hall last night, a lady came up to me. I don't know who she was. She saw me with a collar on. And she said, I enjoyed every part of this evening except the fact that so-and-so was here from that newspaper. It's a public newspaper. I told her, Madame, I said, let me tell you how brilliant that was to foster relationships with the Houston Chronicle. I dream of that kind of stuff in Canada with the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail or the major newspapers to have a relationship with people because a relationship will temper and to help us in getting our message out. And basically, we need one another to assist one another. So whoever's idea that is to get the publisher involved, congratulations and continue building bridges on that secular level. The lady then asked me last night, so what do you do, Father? <laughs> I told her, and she blushed. Most of us enjoy a night out at the movies from time to time, although they're very expensive nowadays. Salt and light videos are much cheaper than the movies. You can see them in our brochure. But the movies also require issues of ethics, values, and morals, and have an enormous capacity to influence the thoughts, actions, and feelings of people of all ages. 
The new frontier for the church is to penetrate Hollywood and to get involved on film boards and writers groups and all kinds of other things because that's the place where thoughts generate and where culture is formed, unfortunately. At its best, cinema is uplifting and inspirational and engages our soul. Films which have looked at religious or quasi-religious themes become box office successes over recent years. Think of The Passion of the Christ. It did more for the church than any one of us could do as dioceses or bishops or priests to encourage people to go to confession and reflect on the passion. Even though my colleagues, the exegetes, were furious with the movie, millions of people went to church because of it. I think Mel did a great job in bringing people to Christ. Think of Schindler's List, The Shawshank Redemption, Priest, Dead Man Walking, Sister Act, The Hurricane, The Mission, Tender Mercies, Romero, Lord of the Rings Trilogy, Bruce Almighty, Witness, Whale Rider, In America, A Man for All Seasons, and one of my favorites, Babette's Feast. My staff would be very proud because I don't go to these movies. I watch certain ones. So I consulted last week and said, what are the popular movies? And they were very happy that I put these in. <laughs> Unfortunately, the entertainment and commercial aspects of the movies often pitched, are often pitched at the lowest common denominator. They can be allowed to prevail over elements of taste and human dignity. And it's here that the church has something to say. The result is that audiences are too often treated to the promotion of what John Paul II called provisional values and fleeting moments as opposed to lasting virtues. Program makers rarely make a moral judgment and the imperative to secure ratings and advertising dollars means that these shows often sensationalize or sentimentalize. On the other hand, there are some television dramas that are enjoyable and relaxing. And we should let producers and writers know that we appreciate them. We're very good at writing letters to ABC or CBS or this movie house or that movie house to say how horrible things are. But when something is good, write, commend, thank, and compliment. And if you're really interested, go to film school or become a writer. This is how we change that particular culture. The church has to be part of the marketplace of ideas and regularly accept opportunities to be quoted, seen or heard upon matters of consequence. At the same time, Catholics should not shrink from partaking of what the secular media has to offer, but rather use it critically. By use of a suitable winnowing process, we should all comfortably be able to decide upon those forms of media which best serve our informational and spiritual needs. And now let's come back to Catholic media, the world of Catholic media. Good communication is vital, especially for people with a great message to share. The church has a story of great joy, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the Catholic media is charged with getting that word out as far as possible. A strong media nourishes our church. It helps people of faith to know they're not alone. We've got something good to offer. After, during and after World Youth Day, how many of my Jewish and Muslim friends wrote or called or told us, what a great story. We wish we had one like that. You know, how do we get this story out? Or other call, others called and said, how much did you pay the newspapers to talk about this? I said, the story speaks for itself. Beauty, joy, youthfulness, and hope attract. They speak for themselves. The Pontifical Council for Social Communications has pointed out that the Catholic media must always report in honesty, 
even if when scandal is involved, this is painful for the church. The church's credibility is reliant upon its role as proclaimer and servant of the truth. Where the Catholic media can differentiate itself from the secular media is that it must go beyond the headlines and report the deeper life of the church and of our faith in all of its fullness. In other words, the Catholic Church can act as an agency of meaning to transform the bombardment of information into real knowledge and wisdom that helps one to live fully. To address the daily minute-by-minute -minute bombardment of information and opinion is not an easy task for those who desire to respond to the call of Christ, to spread it from the rooftops. It requires determination to be informed, to be discerning, and not least of all in the modern world, to be principled and courageous in our response. Much responsibility lies with us, the communicators ourselves, especially for those who work in media, journalism, filmmaking, and advertising. These responsibilities are becoming ever more acute in the internet age. The story with the internet is how many eyeballs? Unfortunately, there's very few questions about how much meaning is being transmitted. The church has consistently held that modern man cannot do without information that is full, consistent, accurate, and true. This places a significant onus on the shoulders of communicators, especially Catholic communicators, where consumerism, nationalism, and the lust for power make the search for truth an intricate and sometimes dangerous task. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio heard Saturdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific on the Catholic Channel, Sirius 159 and XM 117, and on the Internet at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann, and tonight we bring you a special lecture from the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, with Salt and Light executive producer, Father Thomas Rosica. He's speaking about the Catholic Church and the media. Now let me conclude with some final thoughts. And the first thought is on the media and evangelization. The call to evangelize, to spread the good news, the gospel, to the whole world is the great commission that's been given to us by Jesus Christ. We all share a part in this, whether we are formally evolved in media or not. You don't have to be working just for salt and light television or for the Eternal Word Television Network to be a media person. All of you, through your baptism, are called to spread the good news. In every age, the church has made use of prevailing media, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a weak way, sometimes in a different way, sometimes in a fearful way. But we have been there. At least we've been at the scene. John Paul, in his letter in 1991, Redemptoris Missio, on the permanent validity of the church's missionary mandate, stressed how important the media is in promoting the Christian message. The Pope said back in 91, the very evangelization of modern culture depends to a great extent on the influence of the media. Therefore, Christians need to understand this new culture created by modern communications, new ways of communicating with new languages, new technique, and a new technology. In using the media to evangelize the masses, the church must never lose sight of the need to reach each individual and to teach them. 
In fact, when I was offered this position, this crazy position of heading a Catholic television network, I had completed what I thought was my military service for the church of doing a World Youth Day, and one wants to go away and hide for years, and this project came about. What finally convinced me, after a discussion with the John Paul II, was this is teaching in a big scale. This is not about being on television or doing glitzy things. It's teaching the masses and getting the message across. And using the media to evangelize the masses, we cannot lose sight that this is ultimately about teaching, sowing seeds, and being generous with the ways that we sow. Many times in the church, our stories are non-stories because there are key elements missing. If you only saw some of the stories coming into us each day in our broadcast center, there's a hundred bake sales a day that come in, <laughs> car washes, all kinds of other things. We have people hired just to say, ma'am, that's a wonderful thing, but it's not necessarily going to evangelize. We're not the community newspaper. We're the national television network. And people get very upset. What about the bigger things that are happening in your communities? The story of a new food bank. The fact that in a particular parish in Toronto, 200 Chinese people are being baptized on Holy Saturday night. That's news. Car washes and bake sales hold the community together. But they shouldn't be the, the, the source or the core of all of our reporting. Many times in, store, in the church media circles, what we have to do is remember that old adage. Build them a story and they will come. Really, we have a service to perform with the secular media to create the stories and let them come. If we don't feed them stories, they will spin their own. In rapid development, finally, John Paul II said communication both within the church and outside the church and among the churches requires openness, courage, honesty, and truth. Those words must take root in our lives. We should not be afraid, even when the story is not so clean or good or nice. To be truthful wins more friends than to be untruthful and to fabricate things. On Easter Sunday in 2005, one of Pope John Paul II's oldest friends said in a voice tinged with both gratitude and sadness and on the verge of tears, he said, I think finally, they are beginning to understand him. It was an acute observation and a telling one. As the curtain was about to fall for the last time for the great communicator, John Paul II, the athlete was immobilized, that distinctive booming voice was silenced, the hand that produced voluminous encyclicals was no longer able to write, yet nothing made him waver, even the debilitating sickness hidden under that glazed Parkinsonian mask, and ultimately his inability to speak and to move. For many of us, for me, it was watching our father and our grandfather die before us. The most powerful message that he preached, I believe, was when the words failed and he could no longer move. It was then in the passion of Carol Wojtyla that the world saw what authentic communication was about. Those words, that had become flesh throughout his life and flesh that had become words were now becoming an incarnational theology before our very eyes. In the dignity with which he bore his suffering, John Paul taught the 21st century a huge lesson, a same lesson that Paul had tried to teach the people of Corinth in the first century. 
to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 5, Paul wrote long ago, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. For centuries, preachers and biblical scholars had tried to unpack the meaning of that mysterious phrase, as well as a phrase in the letter to the Colossians, in which the apostle writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. The debates over the meaning of that text will certainly continue, because it keeps us exegetes in business. <laughs> However, in John Paul II, the world caught a glimpse of what it meant to fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for the good of the church and the world. This is what incarnational theology is about. The forces that that man unleashed against authoritarian regimes during his lifetime were only the side effects of the way the man who began his life as Carol Wojtyla viewed humanity. At the beginning of the third millennium, we speak freely about economic globalization, but this must be accompanied by moral globalization. Whether or not one shares John Paul II's motivating beliefs, one can certainly acknowledge that his was the most impressive attempt so far made by any single human being to spell out what moral globalization means, starting with a lived practice of universal solidarity, charity, and boundless hope. And he did this by communicating his message boldly and respectfully wherever he went. He taught us that there's much more to the church and the papacy than preaching, speaking, writing, greeting people, and traveling, although he certainly did all of that and more. I'd love to have his flight miles. He communicated through spontaneous, symbolic actions that were often more eloquent than some of his speeches, homilies, and encyclicals, especially in those final moments on the world stage. Those actions were powerful, powerful symbols. The word symbol comes from the Greek word symbolein, which means to bring together. It's the opposite of the Greek word diabolein, which means to break up or to divide, the origin of our word diabolical. Symbolic actions help bring people together in peace and love. Up until the moment of his death and even after, John Paul brought people together in peace and love. This is communication at the service of truth. This is the vocation of each of us called to work in the field of communications, social communications, whether it be within the church or outside the church. Karol Josef Wojtyla, the son of Poland and the son of the Catholic Church, a poet who had once written the mystery play Radiation of Fatherhood and who had come to embody paternity for millions, died a very public death over a period spanning the penitential days of Lent and the beginning of the Easter season three years ago. It was his last great paternal, liturgical, and communications lesson. The response to that master class was beyond anyone's wildest imagination. We had in him a brilliant teacher, a communicator, a model of goodness and humanity, a wise communicator. He was the one who taught me what I'm doing now. I did not learn how to do television broadcasting in the Pontifical Biblical Institute or at the Ecole Biblique of Jerusalem. I learned the verbs and the nouns which are important, but I watched him, it was a careful study. No wonder why they've nicknamed him now 
the Pontifex Mas Mediaticus. He began his historic service to the world with the words that would become the refrain of the next 27 years. Do not be afraid. Would that many of us in the church and in the media take these words to heart. Think of the walls that might come tumbling down. Imagine the bridges that could be built. You're listening to a special lecture on the Catholic Church and the media with Salt and Light executive producer Father Thomas Rosica on Salt and Light Radio, the summer edition. Father Rosica is now taking questions from the audience. You're speaking of the media, that right. we should extend an invitation to them, extend right. an understanding to them. I was talking metaphorically. Okay, what is required is also great prudence and respect for a tradition in doing these things. And so dealing with the media is a very dangerous world to be in. The whole relationship I have with the CBC, which is the National Television Network in Canada, whenever I go to them or whenever I was involved with the preparation for the death of the Pope and then the ceremonies, I went with great anxiety and it was like a, an angst inside saying, Lord, give me the necessary words, help me not to back down, but also to be gracious. The purpose of relationship with the media is not that we all have something to offer and we're all equal partners in a dialogue, but it's also to recognize that as the church, we deal carefully and we never back down from our message, from the content, from the purpose, and we must be prudent and wise. And at times we'll make mistakes in dealing with them, but I'd rather err on the side of reaching out than of you know, battening down all the hatches and retreating. We have to be there on the front lines. The, the key, if you want to know where the power is in the media, this may sound crass and rude, the power is in the Rolodex on each media person's desk. And it's in the editor's desk and the producer's desk, or often the chaser, what they call the chaser. Because if you go through the Rolodex, here's what happened when the Pope was sick and the Pope died, and I was given unprecedented access to the, the upper levels of the CBC. And you sit with these people and a lot of times you have a rage that they're so ridiculous and so ignorant. But the other part is they have not been taught or evangelized or catechized. And I was amazed at how many Catholics are in the structure. And so I said, let me see who the names are in your Rolodex, who you're going to call. And in many cases, they had people who were dead or were not returning phone calls, rightly so. <laughs> and you had all kinds of former nuns and former priests. And so we took it upon ourselves, both through the World Youth Day and through the, the television network, Change the names in the Rolodex. Give proper persons and put young people as contact people. One of the great victories in the Canadian church was to change the groundwork and to change the surface of that media level in the church. So that at the time of the World Youth Day and the passage of the World Youth Day cross across the country, we started surfacing new leaders in 72 dioceses. That's how many dioceses there are. That's where you start. And the basic ground rule is you never label or demonize or whatever. You teach. You take every opportunity to teach and to confront politely. It serves no purpose to take people on in public. Call a meeting. Go to see the publisher. Go to see the editor. And let them see another story. And pray all the way. But do not give up on people. That's been my attitude. Uh, as a young man and someone who worked in the media, I want to thank you for this wonderful presentation. It's so inspiring. And it just gives me the hope that those bridges will be built. I know my, my generation will, take, will be taking care of that too. And also I know that one day the church will be in the world of the media as big as it is in the world itself. 
Uh, the question that I want to ask you is regarding the, the current situation of the Catholic media in the world. Uh, it seems to me like uh, we're still in our first stages developing, like uh, different forms of media are popping here and there. But I still feel like there is not uh, a lot of unity among the different forms of media. Uh, you see a radio station here and then a TV station down there and kind of like there is no dialogue. What is the Vatican doing uh, in, in order to bring that unity? And also what can we do as Catholics, as regular people of the church to, to uh, start, you know, um, forming like, a, like what we are, a, a church but in the form of the media? Father Bernard Lonergan was a great Canadian Jesuit and philosopher and, and taught some theology in Toronto. And he had a wonderful line that said, the Roman Catholic Church usually arrives on the scene a little breathless and a little late. <laughs> but at least we get there when most people don't even make it to the scene. And so we're coming, we're making up for all kinds of lost experience, lost years. Let's talk concretely. The Vatican website came about kind of by default, if you listen to the whole way it came about. It's an outstanding teaching tool. Uh, they, Sister Judith told me, we did a long interview with her a couple of months ago, and she said how many millions of hits by the hour as the Pope was sick and dying. That's a big service to the church. Everybody thinks that Vatican Television is located in a television tower, 20 stories, you know, rivaling CNN. They have smaller offices than we do in Toronto. There's about six people involved in it. But it provides a world service. The new director of the Pontifical Council of Social Communications, Archbishop Giovanni Celi, has just taken over. He called us all to a meeting like Salt and Light would be in the top six of the television networks now of nations and countries, EWTN being the largest. And even among ourselves, it's very obvious that there's all kinds of perspectives and differences. We don't have to all be doing the same thing, but we should be speaking from the same core story. And I think there's, the Vatican called all the television networks to a congress in Spain two years ago in Madrid. We were invited to be there and I was asked to make a presentation. There were 450 television networks present. Now, out of those 450, about 30 would have been television networks. But you had Africa and Asia and South America having internet-based television in people's basements and things. And so you have to kind of make a level playing field and how do we operate and how do we collaborate together. So we've got a long way to go, but it's an explosion that's taking place and the church is coming into it little by little, but cautiously. I always think of the theme as the Catholic Church and media, lights, camera, Hesitation. Okay. Um, so, at least here in the U.S., if anybody uh, watches much uh, sort of news TV, there's a, there's an, or, an organization out of New York City called uh, the Catholic League. Yeah, uh, right. Previously, it was, it was it was pretty unknown until a very fiery gentleman called called Bill Donahue came on board, and he's really kind of been the holy pit bull uh, fighting the you know the just cause. Uh, speaking really for the people, the Catholics watching TV that are just screaming, saying, hey, you know, that's, that's exactly how I feel. Uh, my, my question is kind of twofold. First of all, uh, and I, d I don't know what the, the Catholic League's relationship is to the official Catholic Church, of course, uh, but my first question would be is, um, are they doing a good thing, or do, you, or do you sort of see them as a vigilante group, maybe, maybe even getting, getting in the way of the official uh, sort of a line? Uh, but secondly, that I think the point that, that they're what they do bring out is the, is the fact that maybe uh, the Catholic, the, at least here, the U.S. bishops might be a little bit too slow. Um, it, 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 with the film, the, the Golden Compass, they, they issued initially a statement that was actually positive about the film, which kind of baffled me. 
Uh, they had to retract that when they found out what the, what the reaction was for most people. And then they sort of gave a, a, a more critical response. So that kind of shows you that maybe they're, they're a little bit slow, as you mentioned, and maybe a little bit out of touch. And I realized that the checks and balances involved uh, would require kind of a, the response that we do, but um, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, let me answer it in an analogous way. And I've said it in Roman, I'll say it here. We made a big mistake in the church with the Passion of the Christ in our unwillingness to take stands or to promote it or to talk about it. We're not promoting box office sales, but the value of it. And it was a very sad reality what happened when you had, for example, the Pope's secretary issuing the statement, it is as it was, and a retraction. And then bishops' conferences inviting experts to come in. It was a mess. In the meantime, people voted with their feet. And they went, and they were deeply moved, and they went to confession, and they had a profound experience of the sufferings of Christ. Thank God. The church wasn't capable of doing that. Our programs aren't necessarily doing that. And so there's something was happening there, and I hope we learned a lesson from it, that, yeah, sometimes we are slow and we're cautious. We should be, not have any, any um, illusion about the reality of the hostility towards the Catholic Church. It's deep, it's real, it's hostile, but it does not give us the reason to become more hostile and more violent with our own work. That we have to be rooted and solid and clear and constantly building bridges. The title Pontifex is not only meant for the Pope, but our role is to constantly build bridges even when there's hostility at different levels. And I learned that lesson through the massive thing. The World Youth Day in Canada, it's the grace of God that it happened for several reasons. We had every single thing going against us. When September the 11th hit, I said, oh my God. Then December, five major economic collapses in South American countries that delivered all these people. And then Boston in 2002. And I remember saying every morning, Lord, what next? And the media grew, they dug their heels in. And they kind of had the story written beforehand. But it was the young people and John Paul II who saved it. And the World Youth Day cross told the story. So God, God's ultimately in charge. The PR firms are not the ones that are going to turn things around. And we saw that with the death of the Pope as well. It's the greatest teaching moment of the Roman Catholic Church. The last question. Mother Angelica said that a spiritual growth network must be rooted in the contemplative life. Yes. And Pope Benedict said that without Eucharistic adoration, there will be no transformation of the world. What role does contemplation and adoration play in those Catholics who are getting involved in the media or like networks such as your own in maintaining that deep spirituality so they can bring the passion to what they do? Well, number one, the patron saint of our television network is St. Jana Beretta Mola, who's the laywoman and saint. Uh, her granddaughter worked on our staff last summer, so we got some connections there. <laughs> and we chose her as a saint who represents the dignity and sacredness of human life from the earliest moments to the final moments, a laywoman a woman of our times. In the middle of our broadcast center, we have a chapel. It's all in glass. The Eucharist is celebrated every day by one of our retired Brazilian priests or myself. And we have adoration in the chapel. And so the people working with us are deeply committed, normal young Catholics. And they love the Lord and they love the church. Otherwise, what we're doing would be virtually impossible. The same thing happened through the World Youth Day. The Lord ran that operation. It's too crazy for any human being to run. And so that I, I agree with Mother Angelica, and Mother Angelica has inspired me very much. I knew her before she got sick. She summoned me before World Youth Day and gave me a couple lessons. And 
I am not Father Angelico in Canada. <laughs> we have a very good rapport with EWTN, but it's a whole different thrust and a different way of doing things. And EWTN has often told us, I'll say it here among friends, they, they envy the way that we started. Because we started off on the footing working with the church. We never set ourselves up to take on the church or to challenge, nor is it my role to expose bishops or cardinals. That's not good. That does not help the unity of the church, nor is it a good lesson to the world. And so one thing we've done, and we have the great support of the Episcopal Conference. We're not under the Episcopal Conference. Mother did tell me to maintain autonomy and freedom, and she was very wise there, uh, because we have lay people that are behind us, deeply committed lay people, who are people of prayer as well. So she's right about that, and so are you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Father Ezekiel. You've been listening to a special lecture on the topic of the Catholic Church and the media with Brazilian priest Father Thomas Rosica. Father Rosica is the president and CEO of the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation and executive producer of Salt and Light Television and Salt and Light Radio. The lecture was recorded at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas in February 2008. To listen to any part of this broadcast that you may have missed or to download any Salt and Light Radio program, visit our website saltandlighttv.org slash radio. All messages can be sent to radio at saltandlighttv.org and to read our blog, visit saltandlighttv.org slash blog. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Thank you for being with us. Talk to you next time on this summer edition of Salt and Light Radio.